1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm Dhyadm Sulongkumar, the host of this channel. And today I'm here with Dr. Christo Dos to talk about his book, India After 1857 Revolt Decolonizing the Mind. This book is an interesting book because it talks about India. After 1857, and it talks about Christian nationalism and the uh, influence of Christian missionaries and uh, all of those aspects in the decolonial and also at the same time the nationalistic movement. So it'll be a really interesting conversation. I believe that uh, we'll all have a fruitful time uh, listening to this very conversation. So let me straight away go to the author himself. And uh, Dr. Christos can you tell us something about yourself?
1: Uh thank you so much uh, Longkime for inviting me to part of your uh, discussion series. I am so thankful and uh, grateful. Well, I am a first generation learner first of all. I am so happy to say this because Uh, Sometimes you don't realize what exactly your potential is all about until others point it out, right? And as a first-generation learner, I did not realize uh, that I would be able to write a book of this kind until uh, budding historians uh, whom I had a series of uh, interactions uh, during my lecture time. So uh, one of the very important things that I would like to share is how the ideas decent debates that you have with your students in a way uh, shape uh, the idea that you are thinking about, or would you like to expand? So this um, 1857 revolt, decolonizing the mind, I recollect what um, um, E. H. Carr, a very noted historian in his book, What is History, would say. History is obviously a continuous process of interaction between past and present. And in it, it is an unending dialogue between uh, historians and their facts. So as a student of history, I always try to, uh, you know, read, reread what is exactly this interaction is all about, unending dialogue is all about. And finally, as a student of history, I also was uh, keen on reading R.G. Collingwood, R.G. Collingwood's book, The Idea of History, where he would say, uh, you know, every new generation must rewrite history in its own way. Uh, he also would say every new generation should not be satisfied by giving new answers to old questions. So most importantly, he would say that historians therefore need to revise the questions themselves. So as a student of history, I always keep on reading, -reading, rereading, revisiting time and again these two scholars uh, of repute, international repute. So what I'm trying to emphasize here is this book, India after the 1857 revolt, decolonizing the mind, I would strongly. Uh, say with uh, conviction, uh, it is in a way, uh, the result of my reading or my limited knowledge, uh, which disseminated by RG Collingwood and EH Carr.
0: Can you tell us something about your, uh, you know, academic background and also where you are teaching now?
1: Well, I taught you colleges that are associated, affiliated with the Delhi University. The first one, the first teaching assignment I got was uh, Miranda House, Delhi University. Then after uh, some time I switched to uh, college, uh, Jesus Mary College, Jesus and Mary College. Again, that was affiliated to Delhi University. Now, uh, for the past uh, six, seven months, I have been teaching uh, history at uh, Christ University in Bangalore.
0: So let's um, go into the contents of the book and to first of all discuss the contents of the book. I think we need to clarify what this 1857 revolt is all about or what is this revolt. So let me put that question to you. What is this 1857 revolt in India?
1: Well, uh, in this book, I have not discussed about uh, the causes or consequences or the implications of 1857 in a conventional writing. But I have tried to understand this 1857, how this 1857 revolt uh, in a way can be understood as a watershed uh, movement or a turning point in the history. Because for the first time, you find 1857 revolt created a kind of uh, unity maybe religious unity or cultural unity between Hindus or Muslims or Sikhs uh, and other sections of the people. And of course, this 1857 of being interpreted by various uh, scholars, different schools of thought you have, uh, the British scholars try to understand this revolt for the first time uh, as a Sepoy mutiny, right? sepoy's mutiny. But they were reluctant in identifying this as a revolution or revolt for political reasons. Uh, for example, you find a Marxist school of thought. You uh, see scholars arguing that it is merely a feudal uprising. Feudal uprising against the British. Uh, thirdly, you will find uh, the uh, historians whom some of... Uh, the students of history would identify as a nationalist school of thought, like V.D. Savarkar, for example. And he uses the phrase uh, national war of independence, war of independence. Now, the question is, I'm not going into the details of these schools of thought, how this 1857 revolt clearly shaped the discourse um, on the one side, the cultural... Uh, unity or the cultural continuity, and how this in a way united the social group for the first time culturally. And uh, even I would uh, prefer uh, using some of the phrases used by V.D. Savarkar in, in his book written in 1909, uh, India's War of Independence. He would say Hindus and Muslims fought against the British. Uh, drinking the milk from the same mother and they fought against the British and that is the spirit of uh, you know cultural unity or religious unity or sensibility these people uh, of different social group were able to uh, demonstrate against uh, the colonial uh, British And this is very interesting because when I was teaching this 1857, I would often uh, get questions from uh, students, whom often I identify as budding historians, you know, they say that why do we see only 1857 from a Marxist perspective? So why do we see only uh, from a national perspective? Why can't we revisit the history writing of the existing uh, you know, historiography? And uh, they would often ask me that, do we really need to think that the 1857 revolt was an isolated movement or it has a deeper meaning? The second question they would ask me often is, why don't we transcend the boundaries of the existing schools of thought? Can't we see colonialism? colonialism or colonization uh, as a cultural project of the British. So these questions really shaped my understanding, yes, here we as historians need to take a pause and see what exactly happened and how the history of uh, anti-colonial movement therefore gets its energy and inspiration from this cultural unity. And the religious harmony that 1857 brought among different social groups, which is why I try to see this uh, 1857 therefore needs to be understood uh, critically and historically.
0: Yeah, this is an interesting revisitation in that sense. So, and yeah, and interestingly, you talk uh, a lot about the Christian missionaries and then the colonial administrators. So, to go into that discussion, first of all, I want to ask you this one where what was the view? towards the the Hindus or the Hindu religion, let's say, uh, towards the Hindu religion by the colonial administrators and also together with the Christian missionaries because they came together. So, uh, what was their view towards uh, the so-called Hindu religion? Yeah.
1: Well, I think this is a very interesting uh, question. If you look at the colonial approach towards Hinduism or the colonial missionaries approach towards Hinduism, I don't see any major difference between the colonial government and uh, the missionaries, for example. Um, Now, there are very interesting theories that are emerging in the post-colonial period. Uh, Of course, I am not making any sweeping generalization that all colonial officials were against Hinduism, first of all. Even people now who are talking about Hindu nationalism or Hindutva also try to uh you know appropriate some of the colonial officials uh to substantiate that argument that hinduism was subtle hinduism was inclusive uh, hinduism always uh, tried to uh you know be inclusive of all uh, religious traditions but now the question is uh, the situation changes drastically after 1857 the approach of the colonial officials, or the approach of the missionaries towards uh, Hinduism. Uh, Let me give you a few examples. For the first time, uh, after 1850s, I'm just giving you an example from the uh, perspective, uh, from, from the historical instances where you find in southern part of India, the missionaries started writing some of the social histories of the people. So, for example, the people who showed interest towards Christianity became the subject of inquisitiveness. This is the point which I would like to emphasize. So the the missionary agencies for the first time tried to show interest because these communities were in a way trying to come closer to the missionaries, missionary ideologies, you know, converting themselves to Christianity and sometimes... They became uh, serious followers of uh, the missionary um, sermon, and they were not very reactionary. And I'm using one particular community here as a case study. There's a community called uh, Shanars or Nadars. And you find here, this community, unlike other communities in Southern part of Tamil Nadu were always pro-missionary, pro-missionary. And they were always, you know, Uh, expressed their interest towards uh, converting to missionary religion. But this particular movement towards Christianity by this community was taken for granted by some missionary scholars and the missionary scholars particularly Robert Caldwell. You know Robert Caldwell was a very noted uh, missionary. He became the bishop and secondly he was also one of the very important Tamil scholars. Now he Uh, His statue also can be found in Marina Beach in Chennai, (laughs) right? That is uh, the personality of uh, Robert Caldwell and he is known widely for his uh, comparative literature on Dravidian languages and he wrote exclusively on uh, the Shaanar community. And he uses certain phrases like dull-headed (laughs) Shaanars. So this dull-headed Shaanars, now as a phrase did not go very well with the people who did not convert to Christianity. The converted Christians had no problem with Caldwell whatever he uh, made remarks against Hinduism and uh, the non-Christians but whereas those people who did not convert to Christianity had serious problems and these people also from the same community now, it is in this context, we cannot make any sweeping generalization that one missionary was completely against uh, Hinduism and few missionaries at least supported some ideas, uh, values of uh, Hinduism in Tamil Nadu. And in the case of Bengal, for example, um, you know you don't find missionaries were always against, critical about uh, Hindus and Hindus. Some of the Hindus from the elite section converted to Christianity and therefore they sometimes try to avoid uh, criticizing Hindu religion or Hinduism, for example, uh, Hindus, because they were also able to get some of the converts um, from the elite section. And secondly, if you look at Travancore, for example, from 1806, the Protestant uh, missionaries the London Missionary Societies, they were critical about Hinduism. Because they always felt Hinduism is nothing but casteism and casteism is nothing but Brahmanism and Brahmanism therefore was detrimental to their religion and therefore they were always critical about Hinduism. And Hinduism was therefore criticized for religious reasons, not for creating any, you know, egalitarian society or they want to break the caste or annihilation of caste. They always tried to see Hinduism and casteism went hand in hand. And sometimes the missionaries would say that the blood of uh, castes was thicker than the blood of their religion. So how do we see it? So again, they are trying to trace the history of uh, religion, uh, particularly Hinduism, and they always say this Hinduism, Brahmanism, and casteism. So these three isms were always used by the missionaries interchangeably, right? If you look at casteism, they will say, "Oh, this is Brahmanism," and Brahmanism is there because of Hinduism. So therefore, they are always trying to attack Hinduism because Hinduism for them was always seen as something, uh, a huge stumbling block for propagation of their religion. So therefore you have different stories from different uh, geographical terrains. So I don't have any single answer that whether missionaries uh, could be charged for their anti-Hindu sentiments or the colonialism had Uh, to be charged for their stand against uh, Hindu religious practices. I think both of them are equally responsible in their own rights.
0: Yeah, that is very true. Now, you also talk about education. And I think education in terms of, you know, the search of anti-colonial sentiments. And I think this is a very interesting aspect because I think... This this is where we talk about colonial education and the education that was propagated by the missionaries. So how much of these two has played their role and you know, how much of these two has kind of given that kind of sentiment and which one has greater role to play. So you kind of talk about this one. So can you elaborate more on this uh, education aspect of it? Yeah.
1: Yes, I think um, the education is a very interesting and intriguing for me for a number of reasons because when you think of education i don't think only missionaries or uh, colonial government played any major role of course they played crucial role but we also need to take into account the role played by the indigenous schools of education so i am not ignoring that part right i'm not saying that education started only after you know 1813 charter act or uh, for that matter 1853 macaulay's minute Of course, even before the colonial government's initiatives, we also need to see the indigenous school of thought. But when we look at the history of education after 1857, or at least 1850s, I uh, need to share a few important aspects. The first major, you know, uh, complexity that arises. Uh, in the 1850s, for example, after Macaulay's minute, I think all of us know how his motive was to create a class of people, a person's Indian in blood, you know, and the color, uh, but English in tastes, in opinions, uh, then in morals and intellect. This is one aspect. I'm just trying to explore this particular aspect, what exactly he means, right? And if you analyze... Uh, Historically and critically, one would definitely notice that colonialism and education cannot be uh, considered as a separate watertight compartment. (laughs) So in my research also, I try to analyze that how education was used, of course, with the purpose of expansion or maybe with the view uh, to civilize the Indian masses. And how this particular aspect of civilizing mission that was closely attached with the colonial endeavors of education, be it the the supposedly uh, secular education or the religious education or Anglo vernacular education by these colonial agencies. I'm using colonial agencies to refer to both the colonial government and the missionaries. Maybe uh, mostly I'm using missionaries in the context of Protestant missionaries. So that is the missionaries that I am, uh, you know, familiar with because this is also part of my research. Uh, now, how these endeavors initiated by the colonial government and missionaries in a way created intellectuals like Ram Mohan Rai, for example, you know, he would say that, yes, English should also be retained but you also need to give much importance to vernacular education. And here, secondly, you also find Swami Vekananda also start talking about there's a different uh, approach towards uh, education. He is also not completely against uh, English education. He also would try to balance, yes, English education is also needed. Vernacular education is also equally important. Now, the paradigm shift in the 1850s, of course, uh, Ram Mohandrai comes a little earlier, you know, in 1820s or 1830s. Now after uh, Macaulay's minute, you find that is, there is a transition taking place, you know, you find in uh, Bengal Swami Vekananda and other parts of uh, India will find leaders uh, like Agarkar in, in uh, Bombay presidency, DK karve then Tilak, for example and Gopal Krishna Gokhale and in again Bombay Presidency you find uh, Jyotipa Phule, and in uh, uh, places like uh, Uttar Pradesh you have Pandit Madan Mohan Malaviya and finally you have Mahatma Gandhi and I also see the role played by foreigners particularly a woman called Annie Besant how she was always critical about colonial education She was, I think, deadly against colonial and missionary education uh, because she possibly was the first person who emphasized the need for national education. That doesn't mean that I'm not taking the role played by colonial education and missionary education lightly. But here, since 1853, Macaulay's minute emphasizes on the moral side of the education, the character building of education and the colonial conquest of education and here also therefore these individuals wanted to decolonize education and therefore uh, that's the reason why i'm using decolonization so decolonization by whom why there is a need for decolonization so, if there is a need for decolonization, these individuals must have realized that there is, or there were some draws, or there was, there were some flaws in the system. So, what were these flaws identified by these individuals? For example, let me say a few things about uh, Annie Besant. Uh, she always believed strongly that um, you know alien education. She uses always the concept alien education. Uh, always emphasizes on foreign habits foreign mannerism foreign religion and therefore she advocates that if india was to come back come back to uh, come back again as a nation it must replace foreign education with a national education and in the recent uh, new education policy national education policy i think you also find the reference at least to some extent, directly or indirectly, the role played by Annie Besant, Mahatma Gandhi and Swami Vivekananda. Yes, you have at least uh, multiple narratives uh, that uh, started emerging after 1857. So these multiple narratives, in a way, challenge the colonial narrative of education. So the colonial narrative of education for me was uh, controversial because it was always... Uh, trying to create a group of people who maybe Indian in blood and color, but it was keen on establishing the people English in taste, in opinions, in morals and in intellect. And therefore, as a student of history, I feel that there is a need to rewrite this aspect of the narratives, how multiple narratives uh, started emerging. And therefore, I am thinking this uh, should also be researched further. What exactly national education, what was the role played by missionaries or the colonial official that in a way triggered Indian masses or Indian intelligentsia to think about a counter narrative.
0: Yes, I think that's a really great exposition on education in India and the you know influence of colonial administrators and the missionaries at the same time, and also the need to really look into it. Uh, you know, re really look into the aspect of education in India, and you know, as you brought out the new education policy, also. So that's really quite interesting. That's something which we need to think about. Now, as we move forward, you talk about the missionary sadhya grahis, obviously influenced by Gandhi, and also their setback uh, their the criticism also towards the missionary endeavor in terms of the conversion and all of those aspects so this is a very interesting aspect as to okay the missionaries came but then also they themselves kind of supported this you know decolonization movement and then they became critical of the conversion movement so this is a very interesting uh, perspective that you give so can you please elaborate on this one yeah
1: uh, thank you, Kumar I think this has a very interesting story. When I was going through the old uh, documents at National Archives of India in Delhi, I was really going through a period where I was not able to express the joy, <laughs> literally, <laughs> because for the first time, a student of history like me, who was always taught that all missionaries were bad, and all missionaries were against Indian nationalism. And therefore, all missionaries need to be condemned. And this is the story. You know, this was the lesson. This was the teaching. And this is also the history book tells us. And at a time when I go through these documents, and uh, you, you see that people who are influenced or persuaded by Gandhian ideology, they are one by one, they are leaving their faith, they are saying... Uh, goodbye to their proselytization project and one by one they are slowly joining and strengthening the hands of Gandhiji. I think this is really, really interesting Uh, because I have a long list of uh, such uh, missionary Gandhians or Gandhian missionaries to say Um, two individuals for example, you can think of, for example uh, Varier Elvin uh is one example very Elvin, who came as a missionary and he was influenced by Gandhian ideologies and second is a person uh Charles uh, Andrews Charles Andrews uh, C F Andrews you know if you look at the uh sell, collected works of Magatma Gandhi series you will find uh, hundreds of letters written or exchanged between um, Mahatma Gandhi and Verrier Elvin, Mahatma Gandhi and Charles Andrews and from Charles Andrews to Gandhi and earlier Verrier Elvin to Gandhi. So here I think it's very interesting during this time you know in 1920s and 1930s I find that there are two schools of nationalism started emerging and these schools of thought were constructed by the missionaries themselves, not any Indian intelligentsia. Yeah. Not even Gandhi was thinking about these two nationalisms. Gandhi's nationalism was always against the British and he always used to say sole force against military force. But here these missionaries who were influenced by Gandhian ideology now started constructing their ideas of nationalism for the first time in india so i find that there are two ideas which are started emerging one is um, you know aggressive nationalism and second one is redemptive nationalism i am also using the term redemptive nationalism so identifying themselves with uh, you know redemptive nationalism these missionaries started arguing persuasively that it was the aggressive nationalism that was responsible for uh, all kinds of turmoils all over the world. It is not only about India. The aggressive nationalism, and on the contrary, they would say, unlike aggressive nationalism, unless uh, unlike aggressive nationalism, they would say, redemptive nationalism is needed for India. Aggressive nationalism always associated with the colonialism, colonial power, imperialism, colonizing the mind. But on the contrary, redemptive nationalism was all about redeeming the colonizer as well as the colonized. How one can redeem the mindset? So these missionaries would often say that redemptive nationalism is something to do with the mindset. It's not only the mindset of the colonizers, but also about the mindset of the colonized. Missionaries, uh, they would, uh, you know, argue that its passion and the primary objective of what they called redemptive nationalism in a way was, was to liberate self. Liberating the self in order that everyone will be liberated from the very idea of Ruling, very idea of oppression or oppressing others or suppressing others and dominating others and expressing a kind of you know powerful mentality, the civilizing uh, mindset, and therefore these Gambian uh, missionaries would continue to assert that all uh, struggles against the British could be done only through redemptive nationalism. Redemptive nationalism, according to them, it's a nonviolent nationalism. And this redemptive nationalism also was something which can be traced back to the biblical ideal. They are not explicitly expressing that they have taken it from a Bible or biblical principles. But what one identifies is the ways in which Christ was advocating justice for everyone, equality for everyone, liberty for everyone, and brotherhood for everyone, we also need to apply. We also need to redeem the people from the very mindset of ruling the others. And therefore, they appeal to the people that uh, they should follow this redemptive uh, nationalism to identify India's struggle for independence. I think There are a number of historical studies we can read, but I don't find any term of this kind, redemptive nationalism in the Indian context. Of course, there are few works have been used in the Western African context. So I am so happy that I'm able to use this term to refer to Gandhi's implications and how missionaries who came to India with an, with an intention of proselytizing others, were able to be converted by Gandhi's ideas for India's nationalism. Yeah, this is very, very interesting aspect of it. I'm still interested to explore a little more deeper how this notion can be understood in various
0: contexts. That aspect of Gandhi and his influence is something which is really interesting. And yeah, thank you for pointing that out. Now, again, you talk about the indigenous Christian nationalists, and also they had their own baggage with the Indian government. And also at the same time, uh, there was this movement of Christian uh, ashram, uh, all of those aspects were there. So can you elaborate more on their relation to the uh, Indian political scenario and the Christian nationalist movement here in India? Yeah.
1: Yes, yes. I think it's a very interesting question because, again, there is a notion that is deeply entrenched uh, in the minds of the people, the notion is the entire Christian community or Christians were with the colonialism or with the British missionaries or with the missionaries. This is, I think, need to be rewritten. What I understand is the story is the other way around. Even sometimes uh, Gandhiji would say that uh, the contribution of Christians to Indian nationalism was almost negative in character. I strongly disagree with this point of view because again I need to clarify this that the term Christians I don't think it is monolithic category. This is an area where it is thoroughly researched by scholars like Geoffrey Right. So I'm not using the term Christians anyway uh, uh, as, as a monolithic category because while converts from elite Hindu social order preferred, you know, a completely Hindu customs. They wanted always to retain Hindu customs. On the other side, converts from these marginalized sections were always keen on rushing towards the Western habits. And uh, the third, as Geoffrey Audie would say, that uh, there were uh, kind of you know, Christians who were almost sandwiched between these two. So this uh, third category of converts uh, appear to be partly Indian and partly Western in their behaviors and habits. So this is what I, I think one has to look at the the complex nature of Christians as a community. So Christians in India can no longer be seen as a monolithic category, number one. Secondly, when I use the word sandwiched uh, Christians, I mean how Christians in India were sandwiched between westernization and anti-colonial struggles. I would like to rephrase here what I stated because Christian community or communities had dual struggle. On the one side, they were challenging the westernization of Christianity on the other side, some of the Christian leaders were always joining hands with the Indian National Congress against colonial uh, hegemony. Now, these initiatives by Christians, you know, uh, reached its zenith as soon as Indian National Congress was established in 1885. Now you find number of leaders across India that is clearly expressed in the case of Bengal, for example, in 1870s and 1880s. I was able to read a number of uh, original writings from a magazine called Harvest Field from 1880s and 1890s. Uh, here, Indians, you know, it is Indians as well as missionaries uh, continue to emphasize the idea that India needed a Hinduized Christianity. India needed a Hinduized Christianity. Second, they would say no man on becoming a Christian need to depart from his or her national habits and dress. So how I'm looking at these statements is there are parallel movements, anti-colonial movements. On the one side, the movement was against the British politics. On the other side, the Christians who were sandwiched between these two ideas were keen on uh, exploring their ideas, anti-colonial sentiments by identifying themselves more with the Hinduism or Hindu-ness or Indian-ness. Now there are many case studies in Bengal, for example, K. M. Banerjee, uh, Kali Charan Banerjee, for example, these are elite, you know, Brahmins who always converted to Christianity, and they were questioning the Europeanization of Christianity. And one example I can say, uh, Kali Charan Banerjee, uh, he introduced a kind of Indocentric uh, Christianity or religious practices, where he would you know, advocate uh, some of uh, his uh, uh, Christian converts saying that we should not discontinue our Hindu practices like dancing, singing procession uh, popular uh, customs that are closely linked with our uh, cultural self. Why there is need to delink our Hindu cultures? You may be a Christian but that doesn't mean that you have to disconnect yourself uh, or with your culture or with your practice. And, and this I think is very very interesting because this A particular history clearly tells us how Christians, or Christianity, were not completely with the British, or the Europeanized uh, Christianity. So there were of course attempts made by Indians, Indian leaders, uh, converts, and uh, who were always able to at least uh, challenge the Europeanization of Christianity. And uh, were always defending their customs. And at least you also find even after their conversion, they would continue to use the caste titles. Like uh, even after conversion to Christianity, for example, people particularly the Shanar community that I was talking about, even after conversion, now they are identifying themselves as Nadars. Even I, after conversion, they would prefer to retain their caste title. So that also says a lot about even after conversion, they still uh, are keen in retaining some of the customs, conventions, practices, beliefs, and so on and so forth. And secondly, uh, in the case of uh, Madras presidency, for example, you find uh, there's a very popular person called Bengal Chakaray. He was a congressman. He was a politician. But he believed that there should be a decolonization when it comes to Christianity. Say so he would say that Christianity should be nationalized. <laughs> it's a very interesting story. How Christianity should be nationalized? Because he also felt that Christian missionaries always tried to use the Western theological rhetorics. Western theological rhetorics were not able to be followed by common folk, common people. Therefore, it should be indigenized or Hinduized or nationalized. And, and similarly, you will also find... Uh, In the case of uh, Andhra, I made a very interesting study where you find there is a person called uh, Bishop Azaria, he was the first Indian Bishop and he was sent to Edinburgh in 1910. I also visited as part of my research, Uh, you know, when I was doing my PhD at JNU. And uh, I was able to see some of his photographs. And uh, this Azaria was sponsored by some of the missionaries from Madras. And Azaria was always known for his anti-missionary attitude, anti-colonial mindset. And in the conference where he delivered in 1910, he always wanted to ask the missionaries that We don't need your money, your materialism. We need your love. When we ask for love, you are not able to give us. You are always showing your superiority. You are always showing your racial differentiation. Even when we come to meet us, you don't provide us chair to sit in your room with you. So how do you think that you are advocating a religion which... You know, talks about equality, liberty, fraternity, brotherhood. And therefore, in this conference, 1910, he said, we do not plead for returning calls. We do not plead for handshakes. We do not plead for chairs, dinners, teas. We ask for your love. Give us your love, friends. This is the popular, uh, you know, statement. And subsequently, he also wanted to challenge the dominance of the British missionaries, saying that we are no longer interested to work along or work under your leadership. And therefore, for the first time, Indian missionary society started emerging. Indian missionary society. So I'm using here Indian missionary society because people like Azaria was not able to work under the supervision and control of missionaries. And for the first time, for the first time in the history of Christianity, there are ideas like Indian men, Indian money, and Indian material. For the first time in the history of Christianity started emerging merely because of Azaria's initiative. And therefore, I think as as, uh, someone who is interested and passionate about uh, these historical transitions, uh, one has to relook at how Christianity in India started emerging, how Christians in India underwent a series of challenges, difficulties, and therefore the uh, notion that all Christians were supporters of the British, all Christians were the supporters of missionaries need to be relooked at need to be redefined and need to be rewritten and this is what i think i have done in this book
0: thank you very much for that and as our conversation has come to an end can you tell us about any projects that you are currently working on or anything that you are academically you're currently working on yeah
1: yes yes Thank you. Thank you, Longkimir. I am uh, currently working on a book, which is almost at the verge of completion from my side. This I see it's a continuation of my earlier book. And this book is, uh, which I have titled is From Colonialism to Communalism. This Colonialism to Communalism, I find always, uh, again, this is also an attempt to rewrite history because how India had no history of communalism in the way it is constructed by the colonial British. Because for the first time, Indian history was written in a very controversial manner. Uh, Communalization of history, racialization of history, periodization of Indian history by James Mill. It was James Mill in his book, History of British India, who tried to periodize Indian history on religious lines, Hindu India, Muslim India, and British India. So this periodization, in my argument in this book, I am trying to make here how this communalization, racialization of Indian history, periodization of Indian history on religious lines need to be re-looked. And how this periodization over a period of time led to concepts like Hindu communalism. Muslim communalism, right, and colonialism during colonial uh, period, communalism during colonial times. So I don't think it, it should be understood as colon, uh, communalism. In my argument, I would try to see as communitarianism, communitarianism, because colonialism tried to construct this communalism because they always try to uh, see that unity within the people of India would be detrimental to the colonial politics and therefore they were always against unity of any social group. Unity of any social group was not welcome, did not see in in, in a, a positive manner and therefore in my study I would try to analyze that it is not communalism like the way it was construed by the colonial British because it was a colonial agenda Dividing Indian history, identifying people on religious lines and it is uh, communitarianism which always wanted to unite the people and how this communalism was a British invention. It may not be applicable in the Indian context. This is what I'm trying to re you know, relook.
0: Yeah, very really interesting project. So if anyone wants to reach out to you regarding your book, how do they reach out to you?
1: Normally through email. I normally interact, uh, I would love to interact with my uh, students, uh, teachers and scholars across globe. And yes, I'm looking eagerly for the Indian edition also, South Asian edition.
0: Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for that. And I would like the listeners to get a hold of this book when the Indian edition comes and then keep the conversation rolling on. And yeah, thank you very much, Dr. Christodos, for being here at New Books Network. It's been a pleasure having this conversation with you. Yeah. Take care.
1: Thank you, Lakshmi, for uh, inviting me to your uh, series of uh, book discussion. It's absolutely my pleasure